just cut that whole part. Yeah, let's just cut that whole part. <laughs> So that was, oh, I already forgot the name of the song. <laughs> that was Echelon by 30 Seconds to Mars. Jared Leto is the front man of 30 Seconds to Mars. Yes, he is. Academy Award winner, Jared Leto. Oh, I didn't realize he was an Academy Award winner. Yeah, for Dallas Buyers Club. Oh, right, right. Yep. Same uh, year that Leo lost to Matthew McConaughey for the same film. Do uh, you know that he's been nominated for five Oscars for... Best Actor Oscars. His first one was Best Supporting Actor for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Okay, yeah. Yeah, his second- one of his earliest movies, wasn't it? Uh, Yes. Yeah. It wasn't his first movie, but it was one of his earliest. Yeah. Um, His second was for The Aviator. Third was for Danny Archer in Blood Diamond. Mm. And his most recent was The Year That Matthew McConaughey Won for um, Wolf of Wall Street. Right. Which I really thought he was going to win for because- See, I've been approaching this from the wrong direction. I thought that the reason Leo never won was because he was just playing inside of his own character too much, right? Like, like you know how there's sort of this A-list persona that Leonardo DiCaprio has, and all these other characters are just sort of like what he can do, and it's nothing's like news? Because truly, he did an amazing job in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and you would think that that would just be a win, but he was also extremely young. Because at first I thought it was just he's playing too much in his comfort zone. But then Wolf of Wall Street was like renowned for being extremely out of his comfort zone. Like I, I saw multiple articles that said that it was like the most just absurd thing he'd ever put on screen. Just like the most out there thing. And then he still didn't win. I had to rethink my whole strategy here. And now what I think it is, is just that each time it's been like, uh, any other year you would have won. That's, you know, that, that's kind of what it seems like. Like, oh, but there was just this one incredible performance, which is really what it should be every year, you know, is whoever wins should just really be this incredible performance. Speaking of the Oscars, the nominations came out today. Leonardo DiCaprio is nominated again for Best Actor. Yes, he is. In a leading role. He is against Matt Damon for The Martian. Which I wouldn't be surprised if he won because... That was amazing. Brian Cranston for a Trumbo, which I have not seen. I didn't see it either. My friend saw it and said it was like, eh. I'm surprised that he got nominated, actually. Oh, really? He's really enjoyed a huge boost in his career after Breaking Bad. After Malcolm in the Middle? Oh, Breaking oh, yeah. Bad. Oh, yeah, that other show. He was then Michael Fassbender for Steve Jobs, the second Jobs movie. Is this better than the first one? Yes. I haven't seen this that This one either. is written by Aaron Sorkin, directed right. by Danny Boyle. 
neither of whom got nominated. And then the last one is Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl, which I also have not seen. Which I think Eddie Redmayne is an amazing actor. Yeah, he's the incumbent, and last year he played Stephen Hawking. Oh, that was him. Which was a really good performance. It was a little Oscar Beatty, as they call it, because whenever you play someone, sort of like What's Eating Gilbert Grape, whenever you play someone with a handicap, of course you'll win, because it's hard to do that, right? And everyone else just played people that don't have any ailments. Already you're doing something more difficult, which is sort of how I feel about Eddie Redmayne's performance this year, because he's in Danish Girl, and it... To me, my initial thought was that it just seems like a really desperate attempt to follow up for a second year in a row, mm. right? Because Do you know about The Danish Girl? No, I don't. It's about the first ever um, surgery to turn a man into a woman. Oh, okay. So it's about Eddie Redmayne being a man who's married to Alicia Vikander, or the character that she plays, <laughs> um, and him deciding or having the revelation that he wants to become a woman. And it's about her supporting him through that, which to me seems like a very obvious attempt to get an Academy Award, mm. which is why it bugs me. Also that he's up against Leo, and if he wins, that'll really hurt my feelings. You know why it hurts my feelings more than anything? It's because Leonardo DiCaprio was terribly snubbed for his role in The Departed, probably because he refused to be entered as a competitor for leading actor. He said that there is no lead actor in The Departed, so he was a supporting actor, which many people think hurt his chances, which is sad because that was maybe one of his best performances. And I think he was terribly snubbed for his role in Django Unchained, for which he actually bled. Um, he slaps his hand on the table at one point, and it bleeds, and like it's not made a big deal of. like It wasn't in the script. He just actually hit something, and his hand was bleeding, and it just looked so authentic and good because it was authentic that they kept it in the film. So he literally bled for this role and didn't even get nominated. And instead, Christoph Waltz got nominated, which at the time I was very happy about because it was like, cool, Christoph Waltz, uh, Quentin Tarantino teaming up. Looking back, I don't think Christoph Waltz's performance was anything special. I think it was just Christoph Waltz being Christoph Waltz and everyone just loves that because he has like the quirky accent that you don't hear very often and he has that kind of interesting way of saying lines that people really enjoy. What I don't like is that they kind of just gave him the Academy Award for being kind of a fresh face and just doing his thing, which is very attractive. Whereas Leo actually did something completely outside his character and played like a hateful man, which he definitely isn't. Like he played a hateful racist man and did it convincingly. How much do you think that these awards should take into account who the actor is separately from the role? I think in an ideal world, right, <laughs> you know, in a vacuum, you wouldn't take that into account at all. It would just be right. it would just be the performance. But then that's hard because, you know, some performances are just written better than other performances. So then is it whoever plays this role, no matter who plays it, it's just written to be the best performance this year. Well, I mean, you could argue that that's already the case. Right. You might have a really good actor in a Transformers film or something. Right. But right, that's right. not going to be nominated for best Well, actor. for instance, I thought Mark Ruffalo should have won for best supporting actor last year for Foxcatcher. But instead, it was J.K. Simmons from Whiplash, which was also, you know, an amazing performance. And admittedly, I hadn't seen Whiplash until after the Oscars. So I think he was equally deserving. But I just really like Mark Ruffalo. And I kind of feel like he gets snubbed, too. 
But this year he's nominated again for Spotlight, and I thought he gave a great performance, which seemed unlike anything he's ever done. He had this like really interesting affect in the way that he talked, which he kept up the entire movie, unlike Kate Winslet in Steve Jobs, who fades in and out of an accent the entire film, and that has been completely overlooked. She just won a Golden Globe for that performance. Oh, man. Is she nominated this year? Yes. Oh. Some tomfoolery going on. How often do you get to use that phrase? Not often enough. But see, this year I'm also torn because Tom Hardy just got his first nomination for Best Supporting Actor for The Revenant, which I think is an amazing performance. Oh, he did a great job. Also, all of his lines are really great. And and again, it's something that you haven't seen from him ever. Like, that character is not just a recycled character that he has. The voice is the Mad Max voice. (laughs) Sort of just his voice. I think that's the problem (laughs) with a lot of the Leo performances, like J. Edgar. I think J. Edgar turned off a lot of people because I think that it was at least seen as a huge attempt by Leo to get an Academy Award and he didn't even get nominated. This year, I'm torn because I really like Mark Ruffalo, but he's up against Tom Hardy, who's in my favorite movie of the year, The Revenant. And he's also up against Christian Bale in The Big Short, which I think is probably my second favorite movie this year. And Christian Bale is really spectacular. He's already an Academy Award winner as well, which begs the question, if you've already won an Academy Award, do you deserve to win another one. Should you take that into account? Also, should you take into account the length of someone's career? Because also nominated is Sylvester Stallone for Creed, and he Mm. just won a Golden Globe for that performance. But I think what a lot of that is, is nostalgia and sentimental. Oh, yeah. Because Sylvester Stallone has never won an Academy Award. I don't even know if he's ever been nominated. But he's an iconic actor. But he's Sylvester Stallone, so everyone is thinking, you know, he's had a very long career. He might not be around that much longer. We should give him this. There's an Onion article that just came out. Leonardo DiCaprio hopes he screamed and cried good enough in The Revenant to win Oscar. There was one moment at the end of The Revenant where he's like tearing up and he just looks right down the barrel. I didn't want to, but I sort of saw that as a moment of like, please. He's looking at the Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> he's just looking right into the face of the Academy like, was that good enough? <laughs> yeah. For this role, he ate a real buffalo liver, ate real fish and he's a vegetarian so it made him vomit both both did i believe he almost got hypothermia they shot in canada and then when the snow was retreating they shot in the andes in south america and he almost got hypothermia multiple times probably because he went into rivers in these places one of the river scenes was shot in montana though where the the river was slightly warmer but still you can probably tell from the movie it doesn't look very warm Mm -hmm. it just maybe wasn't technically below 32 degrees fahrenheit can a river still flow if it's below that yeah it's kind of like the ocean in that way well the ocean the ocean it's because it's salt water but the rivers because it's moving correct yeah yeah you will get an effect too of the ice on top of the river Mm -hmm. freezing and then insulating. oh and it's still flowing beneath it it's very lucky that ice floats otherwise all of our water would freeze because it doesn't insulate (laughs) it it would go to the bottom it would go to the bottom right oh no yeah, that is, wow, that is lucky. So you may have guessed The Revenant is our movie of the week. Or you read the title of the episode. Or you could have read. <laughs> or saw the header on the website. What I we, always forget because we're doing this before those things exist. We leave it like it's a mystery, but yeah. it's obvious <laughs> to whoever sees well, it. I think it's because on my radio show at school, you know, we don't put the title as that, so it's always a mystery. You can week. have dramatic reveals. We, yeah, we try to... <laughs> To leap hints of what what it's going to (laughs) be. I usually end up spoiling it, though. I was lucky enough, because of opportunities at BU, I was lucky enough to see it, I think, a month prior to its release. Wow. Yeah, it was was very lucky. It it wasn't the first screening, because I know that there were, like, reviews Mm. that people were keeping quiet. 
for a while before I had seen it, but it was an early screening. I think it was a press screening, but they also give some tickets to Emerson students and BU students and maybe a couple other colleges in uh, the greater Boston area. But I got the chance to see it and I was just blown away. Hmm. You know, the first viewing, I just let it wash over me and I really couldn't even, because I've been, I've been anticipating this movie since I think the night of the Oscars last year, my good friend at school, Bronson, told me that this movie was getting made and I was like, wait, one of my probably top five favorite directors, the best maybe ever, I would say Luke Besky is the best ever cinematographer and my favorite actor of all time working together. I was like extremely excited. So I've been way too excited for this movie for like almost a year now. I've also been very excited for this film. Especially like when the first trailer came out, I just lost it. I tried to avoid that trailer. Because it showed a lot? I knew I was going to see the movie, so I didn't want to see any trailers. I did this for The Hateful Eight, and I think it improved The Hateful Eight. Probably. But I ended up seeing that before a different movie. I think it showed before Star Wars. I forget what movie it was, but they showed it before a movie that I went to see. Oh, yeah. Star Wars came out. Yeah, Star Wars came out. Which looked like it was going to be very dark and extremely sophisticated from like like adult Star Wars from the trailers. And then it turned out to be like kind of Avengers slash like preteen Star Wars, which was cool. It but, was but I thought it was going to be very nostalgic. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was um, a remake of essentially a, a remake but of I, I just from the trailers like how they showed only right. the stuff that they had that was live action and they like the big the set pieces yeah they didn't show the completely CG characters which were a mistake objectively hmm. which uh, characters the the big guy in the chair who looked like an Avengers villain hmm. also the guy who Ray got her rations from she sold her scraps to hmm. also what was the little orange lady she was completely CG, oh, which yeah, was a huge her, mistake. They should have she, done a puppet. She was maybe the most noticeable. Also, just like a completely unnecessary character. I think they did a good job from a character standpoint, but yeah, it might not have been all that well, necessary. Would... I suppose the point is to be like the Yoda of this trilogy. Yeah, pretty much. But also, the next Star Wars, uh, Episode Eight, is in the hands of much more capable Ryan Johnson, a USC mm. graduate uh, who did Brick and Looper, and he's just a really sophisticated filmmaker who is like good with darker material. And I heard uh, John Boyega said that Episode Eight is remarkably darker than Episode Seven. Who else is making the other Star Wars? They had another director too, didn't they? Colin Trevorrow, Trevorrow, who directed. Jurassic World. Yeah, 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 that's right. And that's about it. <laughs> and Safety Not Guaranteed, which I actually oh, saw on Netflix, which I didn't with... think was great. Oh, you watched it? I saw it. It was on Netflix. That's yeah. with uh, Mark Duplass and Jake Johnson, right? And Aubrey Plaza? I believe so. Names. I saw the trailer for that, and it looked interesting, but it kind of looked like one of those movies where the trailer is better than the movie. Kind of like The Hateful yeah. Eight. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree on that one. I didn't see the hateful eight trailer, <laughs> so I have no idea. You should idea. watch it now. I probably should. Sorry about that deviation for Star Wars. We kind of had to talk about Star Wars. Since... You really do, because it's come out between our last bonus episode and this bonus episode. All Western culture geared toward that movie Yeah, for like a solid couple weeks. I had a sleepover with uh, my two best friends at school, and we went out and purchased lightsabers and watched all six movies. So, The Revenant. The Revenant. So the first time I watched it, I honestly missed some plot points just because I was so just enamored with... The funny thing is I was enamored with a lot of the dialogue. I thought it was really amazing. Mm. And 
also obviously the cinematography and just the direction and the things that Leo was doing. I just sort of missed some things that upon second viewing, I was like, oh, that's <laughs> that's why they did this. Let's get the problems out of the way first because there are very few. So Okay, few, before we start talking about yeah, how much we like everything. Yeah, exactly. So few that we will forget them if we don't just get them out of the way. Okay. If it isn't already clear, we are going to spoil this movie and already... We recommend seeing the movie. If you're wary of spoilers, go watch the movie, then come back. We, we, well, we will spoil the extremely thin plot. The point of this movie is not to watch it for plot. It's just to watch it because it's extremely beautiful and right. an amazing execution of a very simple story. Hmm. It's like Count of Monte Cristo minus any of the sophisticated uh, plot. Maybe a better comparison is Gravity because Gravity is a similar type of story with essentially nothing else going on, right? right? But it's all about the spectacle. Yeah, it is about the spectacle, and this movie is all about the spectacle, but... It's a very different spectacle. But, but there is yeah. more story than Gravity, and yeah. it's much more interesting because it doesn't all take place in a room. The other main criticism is that it's extremely slow, and um, like we said, the plot doesn't really necessitate the length of the film, which is a criticism that I also have for Hateful Eight. It's like these artists think that if they make a movie longer, it's better art. And I mm. think that in that, they're forgetting that concision is really the heart of entertainment. They probably felt that they wouldn't do justice to the shot. To the landscape. To the landscape or whatever the shot was. I don't think it's... If it was like a quick shot. I don't think it's the shots where things are happening that are the problem. Right. I think it's the incredible amount of time that's spent as a rehab movie. Obviously, they had to spend time showing that Leo goes from being completely mm. crippled on his own to being able to walk. And I think they did that well. It just was maybe too long of like the travel from where they were back to camp. Mm. Also, the way that the final scene was shot was kind of done without any urgency. Like there was this final chase that happened that they had this really... I felt like that chase was sort of intentional, though. Intentionally anticlimactic? Well, it was intentionally... So you have two people that are heavily crippled who are chasing each other, or one's running away, but they're in a chase at full speed. There, there was a, a very noticeable difference between, like, you know the shot I'm talking about where it was, like, above the trees, and it was just really slow and showed, like, uh, Hugh Glass running after Fitz. And then they cut to actual, like, POV shots that were more urgent and more interesting. In the true story of Hugh Glass, he had such a hard time getting back, like run-ins with different tribes of different uh, trading companies that he traveled with when he was trying to get back to get his revenge, that by the time he got there, nothing happened. Hmm. Because he was just so weary from the journey that he had forgiven them. Also, his son wasn't actually killed. There was a lot His different with the exist, real story. Actually. Perhaps his son did exist, but he wasn't. He probably had a he, son. He wasn't that age, and he wasn't there in the story. Hmm. Um, also, it the way that the story paints it is there's a villain, and in real life, it was just like a, it's really bad for us to stay with this guy who's obviously going to die, hmm. so we just need to leave. Right. It was just desertion out of necessity. What what what's the other criticism? Oh, there was also one shot right after this scene of aftermath, after Fitz and the younger kid uh, leave Leonardo DiCaprio to die, where he's like, "You didn't actually see." I forget the name of the tribe, but he says, "You didn't actually see any natives, did you?" And he was like, "So what if I didn't?" 
there's this one shot at the end of that scene after like this really long winter where they just cut to the face of the kid on the ground and he's crying and it was a really weird out of place shot and if you haven't seen the movie look for this and you might think that it's weird or you might think I'm wrong it's up to you unlike previous episodes I'm gonna have some trouble including screenshots from the movie in the description because it's brand new because it's currently in theaters but that is also a good thing about this episode because it's more current yeah so, so don't look for those if you're a long-time listener, which we don't have. A long-time listener, first-time caller. Of course. I only saw it once, so I had less time to... So I had, I think, probably so you a only similar got, thing. you only got the washover effect right? The first yeah. Time. So I don't have very many heavy criticisms from it. There was one scene of... Where one shot of the moon with clouds moving over it mm-hmm. that was like that fi- lingered too 15 long. seconds, and so that was lingering... Too much. It's those things that that make the film longer. Those small things where they just linger too often on mm. like trees moving in the wind, which is like they really wanted to emphasize, which is like that, a metaphor that, that they kind metaphor, of beat you yeah. over the head with. But those are the things that if they cut those down, you could reduce the length of the movie and make it not feel so slow. Uh, mm. Except, you know, maybe the point is to make a slow movie because it's about a slow moving man. This was maybe the most well-portrayed suffering I've seen in a movie. A third of the movie was just watching him suffer. Yes. Right. Maybe maybe 127 <laughs> hours is different, is comparable. True. But. They both have flashbacks to them. Yeah. Or dream sequences. Both, dream sequences, actually. Yeah, yeah. But for most of this movie, it was, it was brutal. Yeah. Right? Especially one of the things that I. Oh. Well, that, that's actually a, a positive thing. So I think we're out of, out of well, criticisms. Well, I have one more. Is okay. that um, at the end of the film, he chooses not to kill the man that he came back for after they've had a very brutal fight, which surely would kill him anyway. And he sends him off into a river to die. Um, but he says, Leonardo DiCaprio says, vengeance is in God's hands, which was sort of a callback to earlier at the uh, dead buffalo that he was eating with a fellow traveler. Right. But the traveler said in some native language, I'm not sure what it was, he said, revenge is in the hands of the creator. But then Leo said probably the same phrase. It was probably the same exact words, but it was translated this time on the subtitles as revenge is in God's hands, which I think would have been better if it had said revenge is in the hands of the creator because that mm. that would have made it a more obvious callback because the first time I didn't remember that the other guy had said revenge is in the hands of the creator. Right. But if it had said that at the end, I think I would have been like, Oh, I've seen that before. Probably. Oh, right. There was that other scene. I would think that they should have left it. If it was the case that he did have a different dialogue, right? That the dialogue was different. Right. If the phrase was different and did more reference his religion versus their religion. Right. But isn't it sort of assumed that they have the same religion? Because they it, kind of make a big point of that. Yeah, if it more referenced maybe Christianity because Fitzgerald is probably a Christian at least. Well, he had a whole speech Fitz? about that. Do you mean Hugh Glass or Fitz? Oh, right, right, Fitz the, my dad found God. Yeah. The squirrel or whatever. And if that was the case though, I would say it probably should have been done in English. Right, he shouldn't have said it in a language that needed to be subtitled. And that would have just avoided this whole it also issue. it also came off as moderately cliche. I think both times that I saw it, people in the theater laughed, which 
is like mm. a bummer. Because it's not the right response to that. I, I think it's a good sentiment, but you have to realize that with any revenge story, you're either going to have two outcomes. It's either going to be the person takes brutal revenge or at the end they say revenge is in God's hands because that's like the classic Christian belief is that revenge is like right. the Lord says revenge is mine. So they, they take revenge or or they spare them or they spare them. And often the twist on that one is that they die because of their own evil. Right. So the they, way that they get revenge, but they don't do it themselves. The, the best way that I've seen this problem. Right. Because it's sort of that uh, binary of you have one outcome or the other. So either one mm -hmm. seems cliche. And especially if you tease one like this brutal battle and then he actually chooses the other. That seems cliche. The best way that I've seen this done is in The Count of Monte Cristo, which is a better revenge story, probably. Hmm. Um, You're a big fan of it, that one. I, that's one of my favorite movies. Also, it's a much more nuanced um, story. Hmm. Also, probably the best novel of all time. <laughs> but you the, are a big but, fan of but, that one. But the movie is extremely well done. The uh, uh, Jim Caviezel adaptation. He's He plays Edmund Dantes. He didn't write it or anything. Hmm. Um, he's from Washington, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, he played basketball at UW, Jim Caviezel, huh. who plays Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. Um, so in that movie, how they dealt with it was he had his revenge, right? They, I'm spoiling. <laughs> no one should ever listen to our podcast if they want to watch any movie and oh, not have man. it spoiled. Um, so spoiler, he kills Mondego at the end. But earlier in the film, he was talking to Abbe Faria in jail or prison, I suppose, at was that Dumbledore? Um, it was the original Dumbledore. Yeah. Okay, yeah. In jail, Abbe Faria was a priest. <clears throat> in in his life before he was in prison, he was a priest. So he taught Edmund, you know, don't go take revenge on these guys. The Lord says revenge is his. And he was like, whatever, revenge is mine. <laughs> and went and killed everyone. Or sent them to prison. In Viafor's case. And then at the end, he, ref he returns to the... Uh, it wasn't... It wasn't the island of Monte Cristo. I forget what island the Chateau d'If is on. Mm. But he returns to the prison and he's standing on the rock and there's this really nice moment where he goes off like his uh, Jacopo, Albert, and Mercedes are all there. But he takes a moment and walks over to like the edge of the cliff by himself. And he jumps. No. Um, and he, he, he goes over to the edge of the cliff. What an and, ending. And he kind of... <laughs> and that was how the sport of uh, cliff diving... He looks up at the sky and he says, you were right. Like, priest, mm -hmm. you were right. Because I, I think the priest said, like, revenge won't bring you any fulfillment. And he was like... But all your money will. He, he says, but <laughs> the billions of dollars. The masses of wealth. Um, he, he said something to... And, and that you've gotten your love interest. Right, yeah. and your son. And your he, son. <laughs> he said something to the extent of you were right... And from now on, like, it's your way. Hmm. And I thought that that was such a beautiful way to do it because then it didn't do the cliche of, like, he has his sword at Mondego's throat and goes, nah. But it also, it, it was kind of the best of both worlds, I guess. Right. It was sort of a cool way to deal with the revenge of the Lords. But, but I'm a sinful person. Right. Anyway, back to the Revenant. So back to the Revenant. So those are all of our complaints. Um, oh, the other thing is that I was a little bit off-put by the buffalo scene where there's a bunch of CGI buffalo. Most of the CG in the movie, right? Even the bear, 
the bear looked good. The bear was amazing. But During the bear scene, Emmy, uh, my girlfriend, leaned over to me and she said, this is the best CG I've ever seen. Hmm. So you know it's good. There is a problem also of it that. still being recognizable as CG. Except you know how they dealt with it? The bear breathed on the lens yeah, and yeah. like it's snot dripped in front of the lens. I thought that was brilliant. Uh, but I had a problem with the buffalo where it, it it just seemed off. You did have to sort of suspend your disbelief there a little bit. What was what's that Kevin Costner movie? Dances with Wolves. Hmm. And they had a whole scene where they were shooting buffalo. Was that before you couldn't shoot animals for movies? <laughs> but like when was that movement, you know? I don't know. Because uh, because like there's a part of this movie where he Han Solo's it and he cuts open a horse and climbs into it. He guts it and then climbs into it. And it looked so authentic. Oh yeah. So I just don't know if it was a real horse. It easily could have been a real horse that died of other causes, and they're like on the lookout for a dead horse. <laughs> well, I'm sure that wouldn't be that hard to find with the $100 million budget. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't know how the budget really affects like your ability to call ranches and say, like, hey, do you have a horse carcass? It, it affects the range that you could look. Yeah, I guess. You can pay people that, to that, like, do the that. The team that you could have searching. Yeah. Did so, you know that, that it was around $100 million oh. for a movie that usually wouldn't be made by Hollywood. Like, it would be an yeah. independent film. Yeah, yeah. It, you know why? Because, because the Birdman. best cinematographer of all time and the current reigning uh, director and Leonardo DiCaprio said, we want to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's why. Which is cool. It's cool when people with power use that power for good instead of evil. <laughs> <laughs> what movie is evil? Any superhero sequel. I don't have that big of a problem with superhero movies. The problem I have with it is that, and it's actually kind of moving away from this because I think superhero movies aren't doing as well as they used to, hmm. but for a minute it seemed like, oh no, the only type of action movies that any studio is going to make anymore are superhero movies. And that scared me because I don't want to make superhero movies. Oh. Okay. Don't don't hold that, <laughs> don't hold me to that because like, if I could make Batman Begins, I'm all over that. Yeah, because that's, that's a great movie. That's incredible. I've... Uh, Friends of mine, I, I've worked with them to like write a Batman in college screenplay, right? You know what I mean? Like, like we've we've discussed this. I think Batman is a very cool character, and there are other very cool uh, superheroes. The interesting thing, though, is that Batman before those movies, right? I doubt whether people would have thought Batman as is as cool of a character. Oh, certainly not. Right? No, no, no. That's totally defined it. Yeah. So, from that perspective, I could say that there's still a lot of potential that you can get. So you're saying that. we could do that with a different character? I'm saying, yeah, we could. I, you know, and I think I agree with you. If if we didn't treat like the X Men, for instance, yeah, except X Men might be one of the cheesiest. Yeah, X Men is very cheesy. X Men isn't even made by the the big shot Marvel Iron Man, Studios. Though. Iron Man was made extremely well. Yeah, the first one. Yeah. John Favreau, I think, did the first two. Mm. And then the third one was someone else, and it was like, oh, this is not Iron Man. Yeah. But, I mean, if you look at another one, um, you I don't know if you've seen Watchmen it. Watchmen is a great superhero film. Oh. That one's kind of a, a weird case because it's- Kind of niche superheroes. Well, it's it's sort of a- um, and An alternate future. It's a criticism. Like, the, the original graphic novel is like a deconstruction of superheroes. 
Well, yeah. Uh, so it, <laughs> it's a it, it's commentary like, on the human. It's condition. a commentary, but it's also on comic books. It's a commentary on comic books, right? So, yeah. Uh, but but another example, what which is similar to Batman, is the the Netflix Daredevil series, mm-hmm. which if you have you seen the wasn't old... Mark Hamill in that? I don't know. I don't know. But was he in the old one? I don't think so. No, he he was on something. So first of all, if you compare that one to the first Daredevil movie that was made. Oh, with Ben Affleck? With Ben Affleck. That series is so but much ben Affleck, better. The Ben Affleck Daredevil was somehow made to seem dark. It was almost dark, but it was still weirdly cheesy. Yeah. The with, whole time. with like Bullseye having the bullseye burned yeah. into his forehead. It was, a, it was a whole thing. The Daredevil series is a much better take on Daredevil than the previous Daredevil movie. And so you can see how... He's on Flash, not Daredevil. Oh, Flash. I feel like so far Marvel has been doing a much better job of making the non-cheesy superhero things. Well, they've also been making the cheesy things. DC did. Except for the Batman movies. Which were maybe just what they were because of... Because of Nolan. Christopher Nolan. But if you look at... Who was like not the kind of director who you would think would take on that sort of project. Exactly. Because uh, he was like, Memento, really gritty, amazing film. Yeah. And then they were like, hey, want to do a Batman reboot? He's like, you mean the worst superhero movies of all time? Batman Forever, Batman and Robin? You mean those? Do a reboot of that? And they were like, yeah. And he was like, we'll do it. I have no idea if that's how the negotiations went. That sounds he exactly may have, like He may have come to them and been like, let me uh, do a good Batman movie. But from what I've seen of, of like the Flash TV show and the Arrow TV show and the Supergirl TV show. My and, sisters love Arrow, by the way. Yeah. And of, <laughs> and of the uh, the upcoming like Batman versus Superman, they yeah. all seem much cheesier. Even right? Superman, what was, or Man, Man, of, Man Steel. of Steel. Even that, though it was directed by the director of Watchmen, Zack mm-hmm. Snyder. It's and it was produced uh, by Nolan. Wasn't story it? by Nolan. Story yeah, by yeah, Nolan. produced, and it seemed like it was gonna be like again. It seemed like, like it would be another one. Yeah, like Batman Begins was, but then they made the mistake of CG all over the place and like starting it on Krypton. How they should have started that movie was how Batman started. They should have started in Clark Kent's childhood and just right. alluded to Krypton. It's harder. I don't know. I I feel like it would be harder to make Superman. Down to Earth. It is because he's such a fantastical superhero. Because his, the definition of him is that he, he's everything is easy world. for him. Right. He unlike Batman, he doesn't have like internal struggles. And right. Things. His internal struggle is: should I have easily saved those people? Right. Right. And the answer is usually, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I should. Yeah. Uh, should I stop this very obviously evil villain? Oh yeah. But yeah, I feel like overall Marvel's been doing a much better job. Um, but that doesn't mean that they haven't been making weird ones. Like I wasn't a big fan of uh, Avengers two. That one felt. Too... I didn't think Ant Man was as funny as everyone thought it was. I thought it yeah. looked like it was going to be a flop, and it wasn't, which is cool. Ant Man was much better than I thought it would have been. Yeah. Than it would than it looked. But but like that kind of turned into misplaced praise, but which it, it shouldn't have had. But yeah. Whereas on the, uh, as a uh, counter to that. I also thought that Guardians of the Galaxy would be terrible. And that was an amazing And that film. one was great. Yeah. Right? So, again, that there's still, I feel like, a lot of potential. Because True. 
even Guardians of the Galaxy, which is incredibly obscure. Yeah. Right? They made a great film out of that. They're making sequels, which I don't know how good they'll be. Yeah, but, but they're the making... original was amazing. Yeah. Um, how did we get here from The Revenant? I don't oh. know. Was it The Buffalo? Oh, it was The Buffalo. Buffalo, Buffalo, Buffalo. Buffalo, Buffalo, Buffalo. Um, buffalo, Buffalo. <laughs> so that was your gripe with it. Um, so yeah. The Revenant is just an amazing film. There's the opening sequence, not the opening sequence, the uh, opening battle scene, right. which is near the opening. Actually, I guess it is the opening It's part sequence. of the whole yeah. opening sequence. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's not like the like weird little fantasy oh, before yeah. the actual title. So the opening sequence is probably the best thing that's ever been put on any screen. It was incredible. It, it's probably the best shot, best choreographed fight scene of all time. And probably will stand that way for the next ten years. I was easily. I was amazed at how well they did uh, bow and arrows. Same because they're so different than gunshots. Traditionally, arrows aren't really done very well in in cinema. Why is that? What do you mean? So Fellowship of the Ring, Boromir. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Those look great. But in a lot of it, what they'll do is first of all they'll have they'll be very loud is one of the things. Which that, bows aren't. Which they aren't, right? They don't have that whistling noise all the time, which they always do in movies. Right. Right. And what they usually do is they have that whistling noise and they have a blur and then they cut to the arrow already in Stabbed into whatever someone. it's in. Right. You can't actually see it right. flying. One of the great shots of that that I thought was very well done was when they looked up and you saw the fire arrows, right? Mm-hmm. Just zooming by, but silently. Mm-hmm. And the fact that just arrows show up and they're essentially silent and they just show up, mm-hmm. right? I thought was very well done and made it much more tense. It also looked like practical effects. Right. Which is confusing because, like, a guy gets one of the first things that happens is a guy gets shot through the neck with an arrow. Yeah. Well, they didn't actually do that. So so with gun <laughs> with gunshots it's a lot easier. With gunshots it's a lot easier because you have someone with a gun with uh, you don't see the bullet with with blanks in it and then a squib which is a uh yeah. a charge that has fake blood on it mm-hmm. that explodes upon command. So someone shoots the gun, someone else presses the button to fire the squib. Mm-hmm. Oh, you didn't see the bullet because it moved too fast. It looks like that guy just got shot. Right. Well, with arrows, you have to actually show the arrow move from the bow to the person's body and stick in. Right. So that has to be CG. But the way that everyone reacted to it, the way that there was like blood splattering around them, it all looked like practical effects, which blows my mind. I, I It can't have been fully CG. It was also the, the tension was extreme. Oh, yeah. Was just extremely well done. Like, like the first part, I was really afraid in the theater because because they're just in this like little uh, burrow of trees, right? Mm-hmm. And arrows start coming in from both sides, but it's just like two or three arrows, and some people are getting shot, and everyone else just like hides behind a tree. But it's like, yeah, well, you're hiding on this side of the tree, but arrows were also coming from the other direction. The other, th- yeah, the other th- great thing about it is that. When you're using a bow and arrow, right, Mm -hmm. you don't intentionally miss, right? You don't take shots unless you're pretty certain they're going to hit, 
right? Right. A lot of movies do the thing where people take cover and then arrows just whistle overhead like people are shooting at the cover. You, No one would do that. Because that's wasting arrows. That's wasting arrows. You have limited ammo. Right. right? The same thing with, with the guns. Because right? they're muzzle with these mu- and you have with, one shot at a time. With these flintlocks, right? Mm-hmm. They they only have one shot. So right? you're not just going to be firing them at you're people not, in cover. Yeah, you're not going to hope that it hits. You're really going to want it to hit. You're going to intend right. for it to hit. Well, well, that's the interesting thing is like all the arrows that were shot essentially hit. And right. ones that didn't like stuck into we're the very tree close. right next to a person. Yeah. So what they would do is like three arrows would volley off couple people get hit, a tree gets hit, and then there would be nothing. It's not a gunfight. For like 10 yeah. seconds, which is so much scarier. It's way than, more tense. Than, than just yeah. guns like going off just continually. That's yeah. not that scary because it seems like, well, there's so much happening, no one's going to get hurt. Yeah. But if, if there are hundreds of bullets flying and the characters you see aren't already hit, you know that it's it's it gets less tense. Exactly. But if there's one or two arrows and every arrow hits. Zach and I know this. We've played paintball. Together, yeah. the two of us, and it's much scarier if someone fires a few shots that almost hit you in the head, and then they stop. Right. Like, like if they fire something and it hits the cover that you're at, and then they stop. That's so much scarier than if someone just like launches He's fifteen shots, yeah. and they're just all hitting the cover near you, because then you can kind of tell where they are, and you can tell they don't have a good shot on you. If mm-hmm. they just fire two in a row, and they narrowly missed you, you don't know if you're safe. Right. You so, think they're waiting for the perfect so shot, like, but they're about to hit you. Exactly. Like, as an audience member, I actually felt scared that I was going to get hit with an arrow. <laughs> and I am a rational person, I think. It's debatable. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just right from the start, this movie is so immersive, so amazing, and it's because of the cinematography. Mm. They they did this thing where they moved, and occasionally you could tell that it was two shots that were CG'd together to make it look like it was one. They did this in uh, Birdman as well. Right. There's one part where he opened a door and you could tell that the other shot was like in, warped and masked into the opening. In Birdman, it was noticeable because you were every person watching that was looking out for it, essentially. Right. Because you, in this, it's less noticeable. I because didn't notice really, but I, I feel like they might have been there, but a, I don't know. A couple times, a couple times the image was warped and then went to normal, mm. which messed with me a little bit. I was like, oh, that was a cut. And, also, like, Zach and I have very trained eyes for this kind of thing mm-hmm. because we are very interested in that. So right. to to anyone who's just watching the movie because they heard that it's a good movie, you're not going to think like, oh, that shot was warped and then went to normal and that was weird. They shouldn't have done that. Oh, yeah. Anyone... I, spent, I spent half that sequence wondering how they filmed it. Exactly. <laughs> Do you remember when we started using the whips to... To cut between different shots. Right, yeah. That was the first time that I ever realized that, wait, if you just move something quickly, the you audience isn't going to notice. The motion blur can overlap. They they used motion blur um, effectively to make the CG'd animals look less CG. Like right, in the I opening, noticed that. There was the elk that they never actually showed completely still. Mm-hmm. They never sh- stopped the camera from moving. They had a lot of silhouetted. Exactly. Use of it too, which also helps. Exactly. And that makes it less obvious that it's CG, mm-hmm. which is just smart, competent filmmaking. Oh, yeah. Um, that elk looked very good. So, so that opening scene, also, the opening sequence was not all one shot, but it felt as if it was because when they did cut, it was such a quick cut to something new that was also interesting that you didn't think, like, oh, that was a cut. Oh, also in the opening scene, real quick, mm-hmm. they went underwater and then came back up a few times and it was just they did, amazing. Yeah. Like, like the way that they did. 
uh, just the brutality of it as they're like getting to the boat and you know people are getting strangled to death and then Fitz or Leo come up and like slice that guy and oh, then yeah. he falls dead and and the way that they had the blood in the water like someone would, would get slashed and you're like oh he didn't actually cut him because it's a movie but then he falls in the water and blood spreads mm -hmm. and it's like that's really hard to CG mm. because it's liquid so th they must have had an actual something on that guy that would spread right. fake blood in the pack water of blood or yeah. Something, yeah it's it's just so sophisticated everything about this opening sequence and then they're on the boat and Oh man, the score just jumps in. I, I can't remember how it goes, but it's just so immense. Hmm. Like the, it, the depth. They, that's one of the key features of the score of this film is immense. Is, is, a good way to describe is, it. is that it's like so many stringed instruments, but they're all just sounding like one huge organ playing. Yeah, and and I think there's probably only seven notes, if if, <laughs> if even in the entire score. It's just they played this like, no, no. But I, mm. I really noticed that in the scene where um, he's walking down on the riff, on the frozen river mm -hmm. in the valley, right? And they have the big overhead shot and they lower down oh, yeah, onto yeah. him. And they play that score that's really n obvious there. And well, that, and it's that it's the same like it's the same little it's run the, the each booming time. strings, but it's yeah, yeah. And the first time they played it was on. And it was like right after this huge sequence where they lost like 31 men. Mm -hmm. And it's just this great scene of aftermath where there's already a discussion about like uh, Fitz thinks we should do this. The captain thinks we should do this. Leo is on the side of the captain. There's conflict. It's great. From there, you get a scene, like one scene of Leo talking to Fitz, kind of furthering the divide between. Oh, yeah. Early on, I was a little bit worried about Fitz's character. Why? Um, because I felt like it, they might have the problem of overemphasizing character motivations. Right? Where he was or, like, I'm just here for my money. Yeah, his, his, right. his views. and Like on the core when uh, like on the core. Stanley Tucci made it very clear that he didn't want to die. Yeah. Uh, and I still feel like they might have done that, but it makes more sense. But none of it felt unrealistic. Right. And the character, it made more sense that the character was doing it because they gave him a legitimate reason to, for example, hate Native Americans. Right. Because he didn't have his scalp. Yeah. That was also such a good line when he, he said something about, you know, down in Texas, they they might steal from you, but they're not going to take your top knot. Yeah. <laughs> that was so funny. Well, his character, I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that. Right. Until they started talking about it. So I felt it was... You didn't notice he was bald in a huge portion of his head? Or, or that he hated Native Americans? I didn't notice that he was bald until they put the focus to it and they had him, like, show it. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, of course. He had a hat on. Yeah, he had a hat on, which I think was a very, did a very good job because the first impression I got of him was, this seems like a guy who unrealistically hates Native Americans. Right. Right? And then they were like, oh, okay. That right. makes sense. Yeah. Right? Um... Yeah, that was that was a good good point. That's something to keep in mind. Uh, it, it definitely gave him motivation. Yeah, his motivation seemed unbelievably radical until you saw until the realism. They revealed the reasons behind it, and that was very well done. I want to talk about a thing that I noticed in the in the trailer for this movie. Oh, you did see the trailer that I tried to avoid, but all but saw. And the thing that this movie does that other films I don't feel like do as well 
is portray forests. And maybe it's because I'm I've grown up in northwestern in the Florida. forest. Forest. Zach was raised by wolves. I was. Uh, Do I've wolves grown... live in the forest or in the tundra? They both. Okay. Uh, not in our forest. They live usually. In, in like our hills, uh, right? More northern, actually, um, up in Canada. Oh right, right, right. Like uh, dire wolves. We've wiped out all the wolves that were here. Well, there's coyotes. Um, we have coyotes still. Yeah, I've grown up in North American. Western forests. The right? Pacific Northwest. Pacific Northwest forests. And whenever I see forests in movies, I always feel like that they're not a true representation of what a forest is like. Like on The Force Awakens. Right. Like on The Force Awakens. The Force Awakens was okay. Articulate what you're really trying to say here about the forest. So part of it is the density of the forest. Okay. Right. So if you look at, say, The Hunger Games. Yes. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. So in that one... A couple things. That was also forest. a manufactured forest. Yeah. Uh, it was supposed to be manufactured, I guess. <laughs> I'm told. Well, within the storyline, is it a, is the whole forest manufactured? Isn't it all in a dome? It's in a dome, but did they build the dome over a forest? Or did they Which put the forest Which came first, the there? dome or the forest? I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I didn't read the books. But maybe it was intentional. If it was, I guess, good job. But your point is that it that seems... That forest seemed fake. It seems fake. Uh, everything was... Very well lit, right? Right. Uh, well, that was part of it being a TV broadcast. It wasn't dirty. Was Which another the forest thing. is. Forest, there's dirt, there's underbrush, there's there's all sorts of parts of the forest that would get in the way of filming. Right. That seem to be downplayed in most forests in film, and they look like sets, right? But this movie... This movie did forests incredibly well, well in my view. Well, they were real forests. Because they were real forests. There's this one great shot of a fallen tree that Leo like walks around. Right. And it's just this really cool sweeping movement shot. I really like the shot of, uh, I think it was in the trailer, actually. So I could probably put a screenshot of it. Yeah. Um, there you go. When they're walking through the forest and it's raining and you have all of the dead trees that are covered in moss. Yes. Right? You know that sequence? Mm. Uh, that is a Pacific rainforest setting. That is what Pacific rainforests are like, right? Northern Pacific rainforests. Okay. And it just looked really good to me because there was a ton of undergrowth. There was moss on everything, right? Mm. Um, it was aesthetically pleasing, pleasing and everything, right? Mm. But it was muddy and it was dark. Yeah. It was what the forest was like. Maybe another big problem I always have with the forest, it's always too bright mm-hmm. at the at the bottom, right? They'll be in shade, but it'll be weirdly lit, right? It'll be weirdly even lit. Right. And then they'll have the air. And again, it'll be very clear and flat ground. During the bear scene, right? Mm. They were up on weird terrain. The terrain was hilly and there were like small yeah. valleys and there was trees falling. It wasn't a soundstage. It wasn't a stage. And and this is production design, and that is what contributes so much. That and the cinematography right. and the costume design contribute so much to the immersion that the audience feels into the story. Yeah, I think which is so important. That's a good way to put it. Whenever I see forests in a lot of films, it takes you feel away like from you're the watching immersion. a movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. you uh, don't feel like you're in the forest. 
it moves to the bear scene, and uh, this was like very talked about ahead of time. That there are like references to Grizzly Man and different things. Oh yeah. Um, and it's really great because the way that it progresses is he like hears something click on the ground. He's like, oh, that was weird. He like looks around, gives this quizzical face, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. And then keeps walking, and then he sees bear cubs, and he's like, oh, that's a really bad sign. And he's like, huh. And then he hears the click again, like something has stepped on a twig or something. And he turns around and this bear has just gone from being on its hind legs to getting down to charge position. Mm-hmm. And you can't really see it approach because it's running through all this underbrush. Right. And then it just knocks him over and, you know, you've seen some of it on the trailer. But then it is the most intense m- minute and a half or two minutes that you've ever seen. Is it only two minutes? It felt like five It minutes, feels like maybe. so long, I think, because of how intense it is. Because, because everything that happens is, you know, life or death, right? He's getting slashed on th- in the throat. He, he gets a laryngectomy and then he gets pummeled and squashed and the bear steps on its head on his head. Yeah, and what was really good about it was that it seemed like it wasn't a fight with a person, mm-hmm. right? It was a fight with an overwhelming non-human thing. And from what I know about how bears what happens with a with bear attacks, right? It was realistic. It was very realistic because it's not a fight that a person can really do anything in, mm-hmm. right? Even in that one, you could see that he was struggling. It wasn't, there wasn't like a, a test of strength in the fight, which is always in these <laughs> hand-to-hand fights, right. which was in this movie too, where someone has a knife and they're like, they're, they're both pushing right. against to try <laughs> right, to gain right, control right. of the knife. It was just a fight with an overwhelming force. It it was just like survive the beating, but the bear wasn't out to to murder him or, or to anything. eat him or to eat him. It was just out to neutralize the threat. The threat, yeah, to the bear's cubs. The parts where the bear just stands on him, right, and and like stands over him and just pushes him to the ground, and then just sits there, breathes on the camera. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just trying to get him to stay down. Yeah, and not be a threat. Right, and. And then he makes it worse for himself by shooting it. By well, by moving, changing to get position, the gun and getting the gun, it. getting in a different position, and then the bear sees that he's moved and is in a different position and is therefore a threat. It's not that he had the gun, and of course he didn't make it any better by shooting the bear, because that wasn't enough to kill it. As I've learned from Red Dead Redemption, a single shot does not a dead bear make. By the way, yeah, if this scene has made you want to go fight a bear. Play Red Dead Redemption because there's this great thing where you can fight bears up in the north and it's really fun. I don't know why it would make you want to. I fight don't know. A bear. It just it just kind of gave me a compulsion to go play something like in a similar era. Hmm. So like Red Dead Redemption was perfect because, I mean, especially the bear thing. You can uh, also <laughs> here's a fun little Easter egg for you Rockstar gamers. Which by that I mean gamers who play Rockstar games, not people who are rock stars and gamers. Right. As that is a very limited audience. Um But it does exist. Though <laughs> though admittedly, it does exist. You can this is tested and proven, you can kill a bear on Red Dead Redemption using only a knife. Hmm. I have done this. They charge and you have to avoid them and then you have to chase after them until they are still and then attack. It's it's very dangerous. It may take an hour. Anyway, back to the movie. The coolest thing about this was that all these things, again, seemed like practical effects, and you know they can't be because the bear is CG. So how did they slit Leo's throat? And how did they throw him around and pick him up by the clothes and 
you know, throw him down this hill. It was Andy Serkis in how the did, costume. Yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> I have no idea. Also, the ending of it is is kind of a little bit of a gag because, like, the bear throws Leo down this cliff, mm-hmm. but he has stabbed it in the neck a lot with his knife. And shot it. And, and it's now dead. Well, the bear also rolls down the cliff and falls onto him. And mm-hmm. both times, people in my theater laughed. And at first, the first time I saw it, I was, like, annoyed that they laughed. I was like, no, this is intense. Like, ah, Alejandro G. Iñárritu, what were you thinking? Why did you make it funny? But then I realized... People aren't laughing because it's like hilarious. They're laughing just to release the tension of the scene because it's just so uncomfortable that this whole thing has happened. And then at the end, it's just compounded by him being crushed to death by this two-ton bear. Probably not two tons. How much does a bear weigh? I have no idea. I'm sure it's not two tons. Maybe a ton. Maybe 4,000 pounds. Yeah. Wait, do you think it's 2,000 pounds? No, maybe 1,000 pounds. Yeah. Okay, so I went to Cabela's in Idaho. Um, a couple years ago, probably four years ago now. Um, and they had some stuffed bears. And I don't know if they had a grizzly. They had a brown bear. They had a black bear. Black bears are extremely friendly, by the way. Not friendly enough that you should go up and talk to them. But but black bears are like the most docile, I believe. I've seen a few. Yeah, you, you see them and it's not that scary. Yeah. Um, grizzlies are extremely aggressive. If, especially if you threaten their young. Black bears the same, and polar bears the same. Polar bears are extremely aggressive. While I was at this Cabela's, and admittedly I was maybe five foot four at the time. I was I was shorter. <laughs> I was remarkably shorter than I am now, being six foot now. Um, but at the time, uh, I looked at this stuffed polar bear, and it like had its paw out, and its paw was larger than my entire torso. And I swear to you, this polar bear, to the best of my recollection, was the size of a Chevrolet Suburban in each direction. In, it was the length of a Suburban, it was the width, and it was the height of a Suburban. Which, like, I don't know if you are actually grasping how big that is, Zach. I'm not. Have you seen my dad's car? That was the size of this polar bear. Oh, man. Maybe slightly less long. Hmm. But again, I'm remembering something that was a while ago. At the time, I remember thinking those are the exact proportions. <laughs> so, the largest grizzly bear weight to have been reported was around fifteen hundred pounds. Wow! You should put a link to the uh, picture of the the largest polar bear, or not polar bear. You should put links to both. Yeah, go ahead and check out the links below. There's a, a link to the largest polar bear. The picture of the largest polar bear. I don't have a picture of the largest grizzly bear. No, there are pictures though of enormous. Oh yeah, I could find bears. a picture of a of a big grizzly bear. Yeah. Check out the pictures of enormous bears below. Yeah, another thing about that scene though is that uh, I don't recall it having any music, which really it, it didn't. Yeah, which really, whenever whenever which, scenes which was, do that, it focuses the intensity of it. Yeah, there was no music, which made it really intense. It, it was effective use of silence. Right. So let's just conclude our talk about the movie because I think that we've okay. really, really yeah. like gone into all the interesting, important parts. Um, There's fi- a lot of cool stuff in this movie. It, final thoughts. I think it's the best movie of the year. Probably not the best story of the year, but I think it's the best achievement in film. Because it's a movie unlike anything you've ever seen. The The cinematography alone, 
especially coupled with the directing and the score, make it something that you've never seen. Um, and I think that that's what the Academy really looks for because that's what Birdman was. And that's why it got so much praise was because it's a movie that unlike anything anyone had ever seen. So I think The Revenant is going to win Best Picture. I think Inyaritu is going to win Best Director. I think Leonardo is going to win Best Actor. And I think Chivo Lubezki is going to win Best Achievement in Cinematography for the third year in a row. Yeah. Because he's the best cinematographer to ever live. <laughs> to be fair, this is the best time ever to be a cinematographer because there's technology that other cinematographers didn't have, so it's sort of unfair. It's not a level playing field. But that notwithstanding, I think he's the best of all time. Yeah. Uh, I guess for my closing thoughts, I thought it was just a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I care about. 